A fellow at the Hoover Institution, Joseph Felter served as an officer in the United States Army Special Forces, where he saw combat in Panama, Iraq, and Afghanistan. During the Trump administration, Dr. Felter served as Deputy Secretary of Defense for South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Oceania. He earned his undergraduate degree at West Point and his doctorate in political science here at Stanford. Joe, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Great, great to be here. Joe, two questions, two quotations, rather. Quotation one, Admiral Philip Davidson, commander of the United States Indo-Pacific Command, testifying before the Senate last month, quote, Taiwan is clearly one of China's ambitions, and I think the threat is manifest during this decade, in fact, in the next six years, close quote. Quotation two, General Mark Miley, is it Miley or Milley? Miley. Milley, Milley. Milley, General Mark Milley, thank you. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff testifying on Capitol Hill in June when asked about the danger from China to Taiwan, quote, I think the probability is low in the immediate near-term future, close quote. The threat is manifest, the threat is low. Joe, who's right? And why do two men sitting right on top of the United States command structure take different views? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, Peter. And then you know, General Milley is still our serving uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And uh, I'm with my military background, I'm maybe reluctant to, to question those decisions, but, but I actually gonna to lean towards Admiral Davidson, uh, who recently uh, stepped down as our, our commander of Indo-Pacific Command. I think that the threat is manifest. You, they're, they're, you cannot overstate the importance of re uh, taking or for of reunifying Taiwan uh, is to China and the CCP and Xi Jinping himself. So uh, many would argue, and I would agree that, that, that China hasn't invaded Taiwan because it doesn't think it can do so successfully. But, but you know, decades of military modernization, uh, you know, increasing defense budgets, they, they're improving their power projection capability. And they're getting to the point where they think they might be able to get away with it. And some would argue that that they may even see this as a fading opportunity, which raises the risk even more. But um, that is a huge flashpoint. Uh, we we got to make sure that China doesn't calculate that it can re retake Taiwan at an acceptable cost. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. I personally think the best way to do that is to uh, is build Taiwan's own capacities. We certainly need to maintain our commitment to it. Uh, if you're familiar with our, our 1979 Ta Taiwan Relations Act, where we, we are committed to Taiwan's defense, you need to keep doing that. But the best way for Taiwan to, is, is to make sure that they build their own capabilities, uh, use their defender, their defensive advantages to, to keep, keep China's uh, calculus that they can't do it successfully. All right. We'll, we'll come back to Taiwan. By the way, that's very graceful. And I can see I'm dealing with a man who believes that you may retire, but you never may, <laughs> but you may never take off your uniform. All right. That means you're going to say you're going to be guarded in what you, all right, well, we'll deal with this, Joe. Fine. I get it. Yeah, yeah. China, from an article that you co-authored in Foreign Affairs, quote, China is the only challenger that could undermine the American way of life. Undermining the American way of life. If China succeeds, how does life change? What will it feel like and look like? In other words, what's at stake here? Yeah, well, you know, maybe you should ask the folks in uh, Hong Kong, you know, their experience with uh, getting a little bit closer to China. Um, we, clearly, uh, China has a very different vision for the future. Um, I think encouraging the vision that, that the United States has is one that's uh, shared and embraced by other countries around the world, certainly in the region. Uh, you know, a free and open region, a rules-based order. Uh, China sees things very differently. Um, they, they definitely have a deliberate plan to become a regional, if not global power. 
And they're using a, you know, all their instruments of, of their national power and a whole government approach to, to achieve that vision. Uh, Xi Jinping is basically the emperor for life now, and he is you know, personally committed to this national rejuvenation. Uh, he, he, his vision for China, there was a speech he just gave, uh, I think, last Thursday, just talked about this vision for you know, the, 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 the new China and how it's going you know, be, to be, be in the lead. It's, it's going to have a world-class military. I mean, they're, they're, they're in it to win it, and they're, they're doing all, all they can to, 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 to basically pursue their vision, which is entirely at odds with, with the vision, not just the United States. This is, this is the vision of everyone who wants this rules-based order that the United States you know, invested so much blood and treasure to, to establish after World War II to, to continue. Joe, Joe I, want to, I want to stay with the point a little bit of how, different, how life would be different for us. So the parallel would be Britain in the 19th century, it runs the world. And by the mid 20th century, it cedes that position to us. And what happens for British people? Well, as they give up the imperial possessions, the colonies, they all have to go to work in the city of London. They don't get to go run India, that changes. But living standards continue to rise. They continue to run their own country. They go to university. Life continues to be good. And in fact, on material measures improves in Britain even after they lose primacy in the world. We lose to the Chinese, so what? What's, if you're explaining to, you have three young men, you have three boys, two of whom are in college right now. How do you tell them life will be different in 20 years if we fail in standing up to China? Yeah, you know, again, not to overstate the, the example of, of, of Hong Kong, but you know, this notion of, you know, two systems, I, I just, maybe that's a bit extreme, but th things are going to change drastically. Uh, you know, the British analogy, I don't think it's going to, going to hold, hold here. I mean, China's, uh, you know, look, look how they treat their own people. Look, look at the Uyghurs, look at the internal repression. Um, you know, how can we expect any country to be expected to be China to treat them better than their own people? And, and that's, that's certainly a stark reminder of what, what the future will look like. Just look inside China. Look, look at the, you know, look what's happening right now. Um, atrocities, you know, genocide. Some would, some would argue, but certainly, the, the internal repression. Uh, you know, in, yeah, I, I would tell my my three boys, and you know, one, one of them is going to be serving and maybe on the tip of the spear in, in this competition, and hopefully it won't turn into a conflict. But very different future that China sees for itself. It, it wants to be a dominant power, and uh, it's uh, it, it won't be the benevolent. Uh, dictator that, that we might hope. I think uh, they, they've proven it time and time again. Again, look, look at Hong Kong, look at the Uyghurs, look at its own, the, the repression of its own people. That's, that's, the, that's the ghost of Christmas future that, that we, we got to anticipate and, and hopefully avoid. All right. We should know, there is no, there is no way of being committed to a struggle in any more direct and dramatic way than to have a son following you at West Point. So we should note that there, you have a boy there. This is not a joke. This is not a game. We're not playing intellectual games here for the Felter family. Joe, one more quotation here. The late economist and foreign policy analyst and Hoover fellow, Harry Rowan, he's writing in 1996, when will China become a democracy? The answer is around the year 2015. This prediction is based on China's steady and impressive economic growth, which in turn fits the pattern of the way in which freedom has grown in Asia and elsewhere in the world. South Korea gets rich, becomes a democracy. Taiwan gets rich, becomes a democracy. So Harry Rowan was making the very reasonable point that everyone in the United States, to which everyone in the United States subscribed, I was in the Reagan administration, it started then. China will get rich, and they'll become, if not a full-fledged democracy, Harry believed they would become a full-fledged democracy, they'll become easier for us to deal with. 
how could we have spent more than three decades so totally mistaken? Uh, Peter, I don't know. I, and I was in graduate school. I, my, my academic advisor was, was Ash Carter. And I think the, uh, the dean of the- Former Kennedy, Secretary of Defense as he would become. Yes. And uh, I think Joe Nye was that, our, our dean at the Kennedy School at the time. Um, and, and the saying then was, don't treat China like an enemy or it'll become one. It's, it's time to, and exactly what Harry Rowan, who's you know brilliant economist, you know, it's, it's China's an outlier. The, the historical record, yes, as countries, economies grow, good things happen. They become more, you know, uh, internal reforms, they become more liberal, they become more responsible members of the international community. Of course, that's what we thought that that was what we thought China's road was going to be. Um, certainly didn't turn out that way. Um, you know, encouraging, I think, the last administration's national security strategy to finally, you know, put, put a nail on the coffin of a responsible stakeholder theory and, and called out China for what they are, not what we want them to be or what we hope they will be. And that, that is that, you know, that there are competitors. Uh, let's hope we don't get in a conflict, but we are in long term competition with China. Right. And that's the reality. And, and it's there's more continuity than difference. You, you saw the international the international security strategy from this administration, very much along those all those along the same lines. But my my take, uh, Peter, is that we just probably got the timing wrong. You know, we thought this this these reforms might come in decades. It may take a century or more. Um, I, I still maybe we can talk about this in, in other questions. No, what about the, the argument? Ahead. I was talking last what was it a week ago or ten days ago to Amy Zegard, and Amy said they're communists. That's the difference. Yeah. The South Koreans had an authoritarian regime. The Taiwanese, it's a complicated story, but when Chiang Kai-shek moves over to Taiwan from the mainland, it's a pretty tough regime. They were authoritarian, but the mainland is communist. And that's the difference. And that's what we failed to take seriously. Do you buy that? I think the ideological component is, is significant. Um, you know, we're, we're all enough here to remember 1989. That was a big surprise when, when the wall fell. So it's not like communism can't, erode from within and, and collapse. But but yeah, I think you make a great point, Peter, that the ideological component in China is is significant. Um, and on to, I, I want to come to the quad in just a moment, including an explanation of what on earth the quad is. But first, one of the, one country so large and so significant, it deserves to be talked about apart from the quad. And that, of course, is India. From an article that you, Joe, co-authored in a publication called Defense One, quote, India is a longtime partner of Russia, now moving in the right direction, in other words, toward us. But India's deep reliance on Russia for its strategic arsenal and the leverage Moscow maintains, given India's need for everything from spare parts and maintenance to technical assistance, will persist for some time. This will only diminish with positive U.S. engagement. Okay, if I read that, there's a serious hangover or lag effect from all those decades when Indira Gandhi was a supposedly non-aligned leader, but in fact, she was close to Moscow. And we're gonna to have to work the relationship. Here's the question. What can we give India that they can't get from Russia? Uh I think a partnership that that has a shared vision for the future that that, that you know I think Russia's Russia is is not a, the kind of partner that's going to get you where you want to go in the next century. Um, but more specifically, you know, let, let's look at defense cooperation, which is an area that I have you know more experience in. We, we have the best technology. Um, we, you, you need to buy U.S. Uh, defense platforms. You can have the very best technology, and you're going to be interoperable with 
all the other great powers in the region that you want to work with. You know, we can talk about that when we talk about the Quad. But I would say the U.S. offers India. We are natural partners. You know, the world's oldest democracy and the, and the world's largest democracy. And we have aligned interests for, you know, we want to, to see this region stay free and open. The rules-based order persists. Russia doesn't offer them anything like that. You know, they, they've got them. They can because they they're they're dependent on them for so many spare parts and and and, and some of their legacy systems they can have some leverage but hopefully that's gonna they're gonna wean themselves from that and, and encouraging India is starting to turn away from Russia um they went from zero to, to um let's see 20 billion dollars from 2008 to the present as far as US military sales um so the short answer to your question Peter is we we are the the natural partner that that, that wants to see India become a a, a a powerful a regional power, uh, a net security provider. Um, and that's in the interest of, of India, US, and, and all the countries in the region that, that want to see this rules-based order enforced and, and persist. All right. One more. I'm going to be skeptical on the um, allies. I'm not, I, I, I don't want to be yoked to the memory of our former chief executive, Donald Trump. But when he bristled at the way the allies took us for a ride whenever they could, he was on to some important piece of recent history. Okay, so India. If you're Indian, if you're running India, you say, wait a minute, let's let the American, of course we can play off Russia against the United States. Let's, well, if the, if the US has better technology, we'll drive the prices down, see if we can get, can't get some technology on the cheap and so fine. But really time is on our side. The Americans think that our concern with the Chinese is going to drive us running into the American embrace. Eh, not so. On UN projections, the population of China will have, by the end of this century, from 1.4 billion to 700 million, whereas the population of India will remain about level, at about 1.3 billion. China's big, it's huffing and puffing right now. We. Indians who think in terms of decades and centuries will play the Americans off against the Russians and sit tight. Why wouldn't that be a reasonable way for them to, to approach the problem? Sit it out. Time is on their side. Well, you do make a good point, Peter, that I emphasize a bit more. I mean, we can't overstate just how sensitive the Indians are to their own you know, sovereignty. Uh, we we uh, they're not looking for a new ally. Um, but but you know, I taught international relations uh, at West Point and, and Stanford. You know, countries cooperate when their interests are aligned, and we certainly have aligned interests right now with respect to China and many other areas. So, um, I think you paint a bit, little more skeptical picture than I think is accurate. I think India again, there's a lot of cultural closeness. I, I, again, the the, uh, the fact that these are two large democracies uh, that share so many uh, common interests and, and common values. Yeah, I think there's going to be a close relationship with India and the U.S. You know, based on, on on many things. So I don't think it's a, a waiting. Let's not wait the U.S. out. All right, the Quad, established in 2007 by Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, much better just to call it the Quad, represents ongoing talks, a kind of loose alliance, as I understand it, but you're about to fill me in on this, among the United States, Japan, Australia, and again, India. Um, is this a new NATO? Should it be? Um, so, Peter, I would say no. Um, this is this is not designed to the Quad is it's 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 an informal grouping. Uh, the, the region's four largest uh, democracies coming together to cooperate on areas of, of mutual interest. 
Um, it's, it's designed to complement and strengthen existing institutions like, like ASEAN and other regional uh, institutions that not replace them. Um, I, you know, I, I think calling it an Asian NATO has a bad connotation because certainly these are all independent countries. Uh, you know, we, we talked about India just now that they, they are not going to sign up to be part of anyone's alliance, to, to, to be clear. Um, but, you know, encouragingly, in the last several months, especially with you know, China being the, the driver of this, they, they are recognizing that, that they're their interests are better served by, by working with the, these, these large democracies, uh, capable democracies in the region. Um, and also, I think that the, that the grouping can provide leadership. It's not just the quad working uh, alone. It's, it's, it's the quad working with what we call like the plus countries or, the, you know, provide, providing the leadership that's needed to, to, to advance uh, common interests in the region. So there's huge potential, huge unleveraged potential. Uh, encouraging you know, this, the last administration, you have to give them credit for, for reviving the quad and, and give this administration some encouraging indicators that they're going to keep it going. President Biden had a, at a virtual leader summit soon after he took office. And there, there's a, there's another one scheduled in person, I believe in the fall. So great, great potential for the quad to, to be a great uh, informal, if not becoming more formal mechanism to advance you know, the so, common interests that we have. Okay. So you, you've taught, you've taught international relations at West Point and Stanford. Could you treat me as one of your slower students? You're you're assuming that uh, I mean you, you say, oh of course it's not going to be another NATO, but why not? NATO worked wonderfully for four and a half decades. Why not take the Quad, India, Japan, Australia, add in South Korea, add in Vietnam? We have a tricky history with Vietnam, but it's a nation of sixty million people that really dislikes China, and just go right ahead and put it in black and white and have everybody sign a mutual defense accord. If China attacks one, we all respond. Why, why is that? A, I mean, I can tell you as a professional think that's a borderline absurd, but I as a layman don't see why. Help yeah. me. And it's not absurd, Peter. Actually, oh, it's not. Oh. I, I, I talked, Admiral Harry Harris, the former uh, commander of the Indo-Pacific Command and our more recently the ambassador of South Korea, he was very much in favor of a more... Uh, you know, more formal alliance, more, more formal and, and bringing in South Korea. And then, and boy, he's got an extraordinary amount of experience. Uh, um, I don't want to overstate the the, the concerns of, of countries like India, certainly given all the, the, the progress they've made and the movement they've made in just in this last year. But I, I do think may, maybe a, if you want to call it de facto versus uh, uh, de jure alliance, I think we're going to have some reluctance. And remember, NATO very much was a security focused alliance. And I think the quads potential is going to be uh, manifested across many uh, instruments of national power. Yeah, and certainly the economic component, okay. uh, informational component, it's, uh, I think it's gonna be able to do more. And and, and again, we, if, you're a, if you're an ASEAN country, you feel a bit like, hey, what about ASEAN centrality? Is this trying to supplant the uh, the existing regional security institutions that, that, that we have already? And where does that leave us? So I, I think we're, the Quad can be very effective without becoming a formal alliance. Okay, so here's here's another, I'm, I'm pursuing my own education now, Joe. Please. And you're not the uh, slow student in the class, Peter. You're, you're, you're <laughs> you had class. slower than me, you poor. Yeah. That, that sounds like trouble in that classroom. <laughs> so the way you're talking about this, one thing I'm sort of trying to get a feel for here, at the end of the Second World War, the Red Army was in Eastern Europe. And the Soviet Union represented an immediate, so it could be argued, so it was very reasonable to argue, an immediate military threat, hence putting together a military alliance People went along with that, right? The leaders of foreign countries went along with that. So what I'm gathering from the way you're talking yourself and the way you're describing the leaders of these Asian countries, Indo-Asian countries to include India, 
they don't see China as an imp. Taiwan, perhaps. Aside from Taiwan, they don't see, and you don't see China as a significant military threat. Is that right, or have I got that wrong? Please, Peter, I absolutely see them as a potentially as the most serious military threat. You I do? Would say, I would say the countries in the region, they're certainly by geography alone and many other factors, they have to maintain a a certain relationship with China. And I don't think it's, it's, it's easier for us, to, you know, hiding behind the Pacific Ocean to maybe uh, sign a pact. Uh, but but if, you're, if, you, if you're a country that borders China, I mean, India actually has a long border. It's the only quad country that has a border with China. And so they're, they're gonna look at things a little bit differently. So it's, um, I think countries are gonna have the flexibility to, de to define their own relationship with China. Uh, and, and I think uh, a formal military style alliance with the Quad may, may be something that they, they see as uh, detracting from that, that flexibility. Uh, but certainly the interests have never been more aligned than ever to, to recognize China for what it truly is. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in it to win it. It's, it's out to undermine the sovereignty of any range of countries. And we're seeing that playing out now in real time. Afghanistan. This is you, Joe Felter, writing the Texas National Security Review, quote, the United States must at some point deport, depart from with Afghanistan with over 2,400 US service members killed, many more wounded and nearly a trillion dollars spent to date." Close quote. My question is this, does the military industrial complex of the United States of America, to use Eisenhower's phrase, does it work? Does it merit the support of the American people? 20 years in Afghanistan, a trillion dollars spent for nothing, just nothing. Uh, and now we have Congresswoman Luria saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Davidson's goes before the Senate and says Taiwan's a problem. Milley goes before the Senate and says Taiwan isn't a problem. Jim Mattis, when he's Secretary of Defense, issues a, a, foreign, a, a strategic statement identifying China as the number one problem. Three years on, the budget doesn't seem to reflect that. Who are these guys? We spend $700 billion a year. They've given us a debacle in Afghanistan. And as, according to Congresswoman Luria, permitted our situation with regard to relative to China to erode rather than strengthen it. So that's throwing way too much at you. But at the same time, it's just a question that's in the air on both sides, both Republicans and Democrats. Why do these generals and admirals, why should they command our respect? We've had two decades at least of just drift now. How do you answer that one, Joe? How do you make an American taxpayer feel a little bit better about your colleagues in uniform? Well, Peter, again, the, this civilian control of the military, the, 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 the people calling the shots are, are happen to be wearing suits uh, or, or not, not uniforms. Um, so certainly the men and women uh, that, that really run the military. Um, but it's a fair question. And it's, it's a bit personal for me, Peter. I mean, certainly I have a lot of friends that, that um, didn't make it back from Afghanistan or are very, very different now. Um, and, and people I've served with and I've spent you know, some, some time there. Um, but let's not let's not forget 9-11 too. And again, it's that going in there, we had a mission, we understood why we were there. Um, and the fact that we haven't had another catastrophic terrorist attack since then, let's not ignore that. Um, I'm not saying that's you know, was 
was our presence of Afghanistan responsible for that, but let's 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 give some credit to to to, to the sacrifice made there. Um, but but you're right. I mean, we we uh, it, it's 20 years. Um, I, I personally think that a small presence there could have helped keep things together. I think this is going to be viewed as a as a mistake to, to completely pull we'll out withdraw altogether. You know, and I and I and I remember serving there. You know, under Generals McChrystal and then General Petraeus and. You know, we still thought we could win. We thought we could turn the tide. We thought that maybe some something like the Iraq surge of, of the 2008 we might might see back in Afghanistan. You know, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, and I have a bit of a background in counterinsurgency. And maybe there's a longer answer to your question. No, go right ahead. This um, is fascinating. This is know, just fascinating. It's the end of the day. You 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 know, the saying you can't want it more than the Afghans do. Um, at, at the end, of the counterinsurgency is about building the, the legitimacy of, of of the government. And in Afghanistan, the central government, you get out into the hinterlands, Kabul did not have a lot of legitimacy. So we were, uh, you know, often cases trying to prop up a government that was really not viewed as legitimate in, in the eyes of Afghanistan. So it, it's a very, very tough, tough challenge. I would say from the counterterrorism, if we can narrow that down, maybe a small force staying there to help provide the, the enablers, the, the intelligence support and whatnot would, would probably worth it. Um, and I do think that there's going to be some horrific images here coming out in the next few months, uh, certainly the next year or so, of just atrocities happening in Afghanistan, horrific things happening to women. And, and it's, I think we're going to regret leaving in, under the way we did. Um, that said, we didn't want to have a forever war of 100,000 plus people. But um, I, I think a, a, a small presence, you know, to, to, to advance our counterterrorism interests pro probably would have been effective. We made some mistakes. Um, clearly, 20 years was too long and too much blood and treasure spent. Um, but I do think we, we, uh, we're going to regret pulling out as abruptly as, as we're doing right now. Hmm. Okay. So, by the way, if you want to, <laughs> Joe, you're so respectful of, not of me, incidentally, but of, absolutely of, of, of your former superiors in the chain of command. And you're also being very respectful of political leaders. So, Jim Mattis, in his book, Chaos, when he writes about Fallujah, he writes about being given the order to take Fallujah, then the order to stand down, then the order to take Fallujah, all of this coming from Washington, chains being yanked in every direction by people back in Washington who really didn't, Jim would not put it this way, but this is the way it reads in the book, who really didn't quite appreciate what was going on or that every time they gave an order, Jim Mattis stood young men up or he stood them back to, all right. So if you would like to say that part of the problem in Afghanistan and part of the problem in our slowness, which I, I want to come back to China, again, within months of becoming SecDef, Jim Mattis issues a new st strategic document and names China as our number one competitor. And here we are three budget cycles later, and it's really hard to see any significant response in the Pentagon budget. So, so you're telling me Peter, no, no, no. It's not the guys in uniform. It's the political system. Is that right? That'd be a fair answer. I mean, I'm just interested. Uh, Your experience from where you sit, what, why, what's going on here? I mean, our civilian leadership takes advice. You know, the president's going to listen to his chairman, and but ultimately, it, it is a, a, you know, a civilians are, are calling calling the big shots uh, in, in these types of conflicts. Um, but you know, as we've seen in Afghanistan, you do take the advice of your senior military leaders seriously, and and that advice has very often been uh, let's let's stay the course. You know, it's it's uh, we we need to keep a presence there. Uh, the mission continues. Um, but let me just point also, you know, you know George Bush Senior, uh, Barack Obama, they they all wanted to pivot to Asia and or and, and focus on Asia, but because of the terrorism challenge, they 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 weren't able to. 
Um, I, I think, uh, you know, this pivot to Asia for, that Barack Obama want to do, he, he got mired back into to the war on terror and wasn't able to, to, to fully resource a pivot to Asia. I think you're exactly right, Peter. We, we talk a lot about making the Indo-Pacific theater at the priority theater. You know, I was just out in Hawaii talking to the new uh, Indo-PACOM commander just a couple weeks ago. And uh, he's just coming on board, but you know, I think he's also very concerned that hey, if you're going to call this a priority, let's resource it accordingly. Yeah, that way. All right. So back to our own armed forces. For, here's you again. Let me quote you. This is the problem of innovation. This is Joe Felter writing in Defense One. Quote: Rapid innovation in new technologies, cyber, AI, autonomy, access to space, drones, biotech, are no longer being led by military and government labs but instead from, come from commercial vendors, many of them Chinese, close quote. Okay, in the old Cold War, the Pentagon funds the aerospace industry down in Southern California, and the innovation that the American economy throws off is, is taking place within, again, to use Eisenhower's phrase, it's taking place inside the military industrial complex. And now it's not. Joe Felter says, no, it's kids here in Silicon Valley. And the nature of the problem is I see it, redefine it if you'd like to, runs as follows. The Chinese outnumber us and they will always outnumber us. They spend a little less than we do now on military spending, but that may change at any moment and their economy is already by some measures as big as ours. Our only hope for a sustainable edge is innovation. And now innovation is really tricky. So I have, you've been out here in Silicon Valley for some years now. You've heard what I've heard. The CIA has its venture fund. There's DIUX or DUIX, I can't remember. And you get off the record and, and uh, have a glass of wine over a dinner and the entrepreneurs say, oh yeah, easy money. They invest in the wrong ways and at high valuations. They're the government. Of course, they're going to be slow. They're going to be behind the curve. So how do we, how do we, how does the United States, how does the Pentagon, how do we incorporate innovation fast enough before it's stolen? Peter, you, you, you nailed uh, the essence of, of, of the challenge here. And you mentioned that you know, we're, we're still configured to fight and win the Cold War as far as our you know, acquisition and requirement system. And, and you know, we've got a system that's designed to build incrementally better aircraft carriers, submarines, fighters, you know, every every decade or two. And that that, that got us through. A, a, it's good at that. It actually su succeeds at that, right? And, and Peter, think about our, our our military technology, you know, of the last century was developed in government labs and our, our best and brightest out of Stanford and MIT, Harvard, they wanted to go work for the NSA and work for, you know, um, you know, government primes, our military primes, but but now our best in, you know, you, you mentioned our, our, our the military relevant technology now is is, is being developed in, in the commercial sector. And, and critically, that means that developments and advances in these technologies are driven by consumer demand, not, not you know, not, not by government directives. So it's turned on its head now. Um, and so we've got to find ways to, to identify, deploy at speed and scale these, these technologies. And, 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 and it's not building a better aircraft carrier every decade. It's it's getting you know last week's software update you know better, faster, quicker. It's looking at you know new conflict domains of cyber and space. So, but 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 you nailed it, Peter. But but there's an upside there. I, I do think that that innovation that we see here in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, 
that's hard to steal. You know, they, they're doing, China's doing very well at stealing it, but uh, part of the actual innovation sphere, I think that's one of the strengths and comparative advantage the U.S. is going to maintain for some time. Okay. So I have a reform to suggest, Joe. I have two reforms to suggest. This was me as the layman thinking, how can I get extra credit in Joe's class? And here's one reform. You, you reduce the number of jobs the Pentagon does by outsourcing a lot of it. We've already seen this. Palantir arises, why? Because it's better at crunching data than the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies. Elon Musk, it turns out. Elon Musk is better at putting up satellites. If, it, if we get to Mars, it'll be because Elon Musk gets us there or Jeff Bezos gets us there. And we should be thrilled with this. If there are functions that can be performed better in the private sector, even if they bear directly on national security, let's go for it. Let's use that American strength, scale down the Pentagon. We need fewer officers trying to design the next aircraft carrier and more officers identifying problems and then getting on airplanes and spending a month or two at a time out here in Silicon Valley finding kids who can solve those problems. Pretty brilliant, wouldn't you say, Joe? Sure. No, does that does something like that sound like a, a workable well, idea? Yeah, and let's, or is it already happening, probably? I was just saying, let's give a little credit. I think we do recognize this challenge and, and there are efforts to find more ways and more pathways for, for individuals. So I mean, there's even talk of you know direct commissioning you know, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs and giving, giving them a chance to, to serve. Uh, you mentioned DIU, uh, formerly DIUX. Right. Um, Mike Brown, the director there, is, is, is a visionary, just doing a great job. His previous director is actually a Hoover visiting fellow, Raj Shaw, whom you know. Um, but we're trying. We, you know, the DIU is a great example. Uh, Ash Carter put it in place. Uh, Jim Mattis kept it going, and, and it's flourishing. Uh, the, the services are developing their own innovation hubs. Uh, you got AFWorks uh, for the Air Force, SoftWorks for the Special Operations, Naval X for the Navy. So I think there's a real recognition that that, that you know the, the the military relevant technology it's 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 out in the private sector, and we got to find ways to, to, to identify it and, and, and deploy it at scale. Um, but how we're going to find, I mean, the, the military, you know, I, I think there's recognition. We're going to see some changes. You're seeing some, uh, you call it outsourcing, but I just think there's a recognition that, that we're going to find find these technologies in, in the private sector. Uh, you know, shame on us if, if we don't find ways to do, do it fast and, 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 and at scale and speed. Okay. One more reform I'd like to try on you, or at least one new way I grant, by the way, you were you were just very polite, with, even with me at that in that last question. So a lot of this stuff is already going on, and my bright idea has come up with an idea that other people have had years ago. Okay, I thank you, Joe. <laughs> but here's here's another idea: punitive expeditions. Gil Barndollar, writing recently in the Wall Street Journal, quote: "America cannot afford to garrison Afghanistan or other failed states endlessly. It can afford to inflict short and sharp." punishment, punitive expeditions, brief, high-intensity campaigns to punish sponsors of terrorism and deter others are overdue for a return to America's strategic toolkit, close quote. Joe, let's just drop this idea of creating democracies around the world. It really, really doesn't seem to work very well. The next time a Taliban gives comfort to terrorists who attack us, let's do what we did to the Taliban first in those initial weeks, which is to destroy their regime 
and kill many of those leaders, but then let's come home. That's the idea that we don't think in terms of missionary operations. We think in terms of quick, unambiguous punishments. Peter, I think starting hindsight that that's certainly a, an approach that you know more and more people would have uh, realized it was, was more appropriate. But let me just make a point in how where we are in Afghanistan now. Peter, when we pull out our last service member in the next coming weeks, think about how limited we are to 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 exert that that that, that kind of sharp, short, uh, discreet uh, uh, interventions. You know, we 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 are losing. Um, our, our presence there. That means we're going to have to launch from offshore, which is very, very difficult, very, very expensive. We've lost the support of our allies. The allies had twice as many soldiers uh, serving here recently than, than the United States did. We're losing all of our allied support. We're losing all our ability to collect intelligence, which you really need presence to collect intelligence. We're losing our ability to, to provide air support, you know, responsive air support. So I agree with you, Peter. I agree with you. We want to maintain that capability to have those sharp, sharp, discreet, targeted interventions. But if we have no one on the ground, which we're going to have very soon, we've greatly limited it, and it's it's we've greatly increased the cost of having those. Now we have to float an aircraft carrier out somewhere to, to to project power or launch, you know, and refuel an air from from a base, you know, in, in somewhere else in the Middle East. So, so I agree, we need to maintain that capability, and we are losing that capacity to do so, or making it much much more expensive and much more U.S. centric, and not shared by the, not sharing that burden with allies and partners. By, by leaving Afghanistan. Um, so I think I agree with what you said. And I think that all the more reason to, to point to the, the, the I think the, 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 the mistake is gonna be to, to lose that, that small, even that small presence that, that, that we have right now in Afghanistan. Joe, last question. You have sons, you have kids, you teach at, here at Stanford, you've taught at the United States Military Academy. A senior comes to you and says, Dr. Felter, I've got two choices. The United States military, let's say the army. Maybe the kid is ambitious, maybe special forces in the army. Or I've got an offer here from Facebook or Twitter or Google tech. What do you advise him or her? Well, thanks. Thanks, Peter. And I've had the great privilege of mentoring a lot of students here at Stanford that have an interest in the military. You know, it's it, you really got to get to know that that young man or woman and, and really get a sense for, you know, is his military service, you know, what, what he or she thinks it's going to be. And is it, is it right, right for them? Um, my experience, if, if they got anything to do it, um, I find that I encourage them to explore options to do it. You know, and there, there's a range of ways to do that. Some you can go down an extreme route of special forces of uh, or there's other op op options. But you really have to get, you know, it's an individual decision. Fortunately, we, we're in a country that has, um, you know, uh, a volunteer military, so so we're, we don't put the, the people who don't want to be there in the military, um, but it's really an individual decision. Um, you know, I've had uh, uh, parents of, of of students contact me distraught that I've, I'm I'm trying to push their children into the military, but but I think it's just empowering them to to to, to realize you know the, the goals that they have. And so you you feel no impulse to say, listen, go to work for Google. No, and the armed yeah. forces are a mess. It's not like when I went to West Point, it's a mess. Go to work for, you feel no impulse to say that. You know, I think it's not just military, I think it's public service. And there's lots of ways to pursue public service. You know, our own George Schultz, you know, five cabinet posts, you know, you ask him to introduce himself, he'll say George Schultz Marine. I mean, there's, there's no greater act of public service than laying down 
your life for your country. So, but there's other ways to serve. And I would, and let me get back to your question, Peter, before I, before we have to end, um, go to Google. I mean, they're changing the world. You know, Stanford students in, in our tech companies are changing the world, but, but I would, I would say, Hey, go there, but remember how you remember the, 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 the privileges that you have as an American, that the, the freedoms, um, the opportunities, that you have as an American that, that helps a company like Google flourish and it helps you get to a place like, like Google. And you know, if you're there for a while and you're in a leadership position, maybe maybe consider that when, when your country needs some kind of technology like, like uh, we've seen in, in the past. And, and think about that, that, hey, maybe it's not uh, so bad to support your, your country with, with, with some technology. Or, or maybe you like many people we, we see here in Silicon Valley, Peter, in this area, maybe you get, get some means and you're in a position to support some causes. You know, you know, so, so support some causes that you think strengthen America, you know, and I, I know this is a friendly crowd here, but I know we have some folks that support the Hoover Institution listening and hey, I'm a little biased, but I think that's a great example, you know, uh, 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 you know, fund some of the thinking that helps us keep, keep, keep a strong country and, and make sure that, um, you know, those ideas that define this great free, free society are flourish. So, so the short answer question is, hey, it's an individual. Some people are, are cut out for the military. I encourage them to do it because you get to be my age. If you didn't join, there's always that, gosh, I should have, could have, would And you don't want to be that person. Even if you serve for a few years, other ways to do public service, get, get into public, you know, to politics. Uh, long, there's so many ways to serve, but, but hey, if you don't want to do any of that, go to Google, do well, help, help you know, be a patriot in, in those organizations and ensure that, that the technologies, you know, maybe if, if your country calls on those technologies, do it. You know, countries like companies like Pounder certainly do it, but, but can't say the same for, for some others. And also, if you get to a point where you can support good causes, be a patriot in, 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 in how you support those causes and you can, you can make a difference. You can have impact, you know, not necessarily by putting on the uniform. There's so many other ways to do it. And uh, we, we see it so many times here at Stanford, the, the, the impact these students have is just extraordinary. So uh, um, hope be a that's patriot. a roundabout. Be a, be a patriot. Dr. Joseph Felter, formerly of the United States Army, now of the Hoover Institution, thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's great to, great to spend some time with you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson. Mm -hmm.